So moving on then in Mark, Mark chapter 6, I've said in uh, earlier talks on Mark that really this is the transcript of Mark's preaching of the Gospel. And <clears throat> that if you want to know what the Gospel is, you read the Gospels. The Gospel according to Mark, or Matthew, or Luke, or John. That although, uh, as happens, when one is preaching the Gospel, one says uh, a slightly different uh, set of uh, things to, to one group than you might say to another. But the essential uh, message is the same. And so the material that Mark chose, or that Matthew chose, for example, was suited to the, the group that they were initially working with. And it would seem to me that the early churches met mainly in homes. There's no archaeological evidence of large church halls or anything like that, uh, certainly in the first uh, couple of centuries. The archaeological evidence is all of people meeting in homes. And so Mark, in, in his Gospel, keeps on talking about encounters which Jesus had with people in homes. And I think that that's significant because what he's really saying is just as Jesus encountered people in homes and taught the gospel in, in homes in the first century, so that is continuing today in our house churches. And so, for example, here in verse 10, uh, he talks about whenever you enter into a, into a place and preach, uh, enter into the house and stay there until you leave. And in other records, it's, he says, don't go from house to house. And I, I think that reflects his desire to build up groups of people in families, houses, if you like, uh, that were loyal to him and to his teaching. And so that would make sense in, that Mark would mention that uh, in a gospel that keeps on talking about encounters that Jesus has with people in homes. Now, there's a, another word that Mark keeps on dwelling on, and it's this word, to begin. Uh, here in chapter 6, you've got it uh, three or four times. Uh, in verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. Uh, verse 7, he began to send them out by two and two. Uh, 34... He was moved with compassion, and he began to teach them many things. You actually got it again in verse 55. Now, this, this word, to begin, occurs so many times in Mark, and sometimes, uh, like there in, uh, in verse 7, you wonder, sort of, what does it add? He began to send them out by two and two. Well, yeah, he sent them out by two and two. So why, why the focus on he began? Well, it goes back, I think, to the beginning of Mark, where you read that in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God um, and you've also got well we're there in Mark 1 verse 45 that the cured man began to publish the gospel very much it's often used about spreading the gospel and I think that what Mark has in mind is that the work which Jesus did in his mortal life was only a beginning and it's continuing and that is of course picked up uh, by Luke when he talks in Acts chapter 1 this is like his second volume he's written the account of Jesus in Luke and then he records the acts of the followers of Jesus in Acts and he says in Acts 1 verse 1 the former treatise I have made of all that Jesus began to do and to teach 
the implication being that the book of Acts is him continuing to do that through the church, through the people who are in him. And so I think Mark's liking for this word begin, that Jesus kept on beginning to teach, he was beginning to send people out, people began to, to preach and teach about him. The implication is that this was only a beginning. And we tend, in our weakness, to look back to the ministry of Jesus and to think that that is um, sort of <clears throat> the end, and that we therefore are so sort of disconnected from what happened then. And yet that's not the case at all. We are to see a, a direct line of continuity between our homes, our fellowship in each other's homes, um, our preaching of the gospel, the, the work of Jesus, uh, we are to see a direct line of, of continuity between us today and him and the disciples then. That as they walked behind him, following him around first century Palestine, through the roads, the, get the lanes and, and the simple homes of, of that land, so we are to see us, in essence, doing the same in, in our lives. Now, <clears throat> it's also been suggested that Mark was writing to counter a heresy which uh, is called the divine man the idea that Jesus was actually more than human and it was I suppose a, an error of thought that came to, to its, its term in, the, in the, the wrong doctrine of the trinity and that's been suggested <coughs> for, for a number of reasons uh, various connections between certain phrases that Mark uses and various um, I suppose incipiently uh, Gnostic ideas that were floating around in the first century and Mark therefore emphasizes the humanity of Jesus and when he talks about his exaltation he talks about Jesus being exalted on the basis of being the son of man that it was exactly because the Lord had our nature that he really was and is capable of, <clears throat> of being uh, exalted by us because he as one of us rose so high now, this emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, I think you see it there in verse 6, Jesus came into his own country. And then verse 4, when they didn't recognize him, he says, A prophet isn't without honor, but in his own country, among his own kin, and in his own house. His own. Yeah, John says this in John 1.11, He came unto his own, that is the Jews, and his own did not accept him. In fact, the connection could even imply, the connection between John 1.11 and the, these verses in Mark, that John had specifically in mind there the rejection of Jesus by his family and friends and associates there in, in, uh, in Nazareth. <clears throat> now, the point is, Jesus was human, and they were his own. He was not a comet that sort of sped in from outer space from heaven for 33 years and sped off again. The whole point is that he, as one of us, one of our boys, as it were, set us the path to glory, that he rose up so much, so high. I mean, he was like us. You know, a bunch of dust and, and water and calcium and whatever stuck together in a, in a body with uh, two legs and a and a head and then two arms etc he was like that but he rose so far above that and he is now in heaven and he shall come again 
in the power of an endless life and we really can share that path and sometimes it seems that our humanity is so frail and is so weak that we wonder whether really it's all possible of course there's so many people who reject the gospel simply on the basis of thinking that that can't be it can't be for me look just give me 70 80 years with reasonable health and reasonable money in in this world and i'm fine you know and okay fairly good relationships with people and that's all i really want and so many people can't see beyond that they can't see the huge uh, potential which there is in being human and the reason why they can't see that is because they have not really grasped the idea that Jesus really did exist 2,000 years ago uh, and was structured just like us in terms of his nature, was our representative exactly, and yet didn't sin and therefore has been highly exalted. And we who are baptized into him are really counted by God as if we are him. And it's because they, they don't understand that, or have not really thought about that, and certainly don't believe that, that they fail to see the huge possibility and potential which there is in being human. And so, in verse 3, they say, you know, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judah, Simon, and his sisters, they're here with us in the village. And they were offended at him. In other words, they were caused to stumble by the fact that actually the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, was actually one of them, was human. They just couldn't get it. And it seems to me that every false doctrine has a psychological basis. And I think the whole thing about the Trinity has a, a psychological basis. It's not simply uh, intellectual failure in, in misinterpreting the Bible I think it goes further than that if Jesus was human that demands so much from me it would be far better if I could just say that he was um, not uh, not human at all he was a, a God who came to, to, to uh, save me etc but the fact that he was exactly of my nature demands a lot in that I really now have no excuse for all my failure no longer can I blame human nature for my failure because he had that and he overcame that now the carpenter this Greek word tecton it doesn't necessarily mean someone who works with wood a, a, a tecton was really a, a landless labourer so he could have been a carpenter, he could have more likely been a builder, that's typically what it was uh, used about. And a lot of people had lost their land in Galilee. There was real poverty in the first century, in the time of Jesus, particularly among the landless people, these people called tecton, translated as carpenter uh, here, um, and they'd lost their land, and so therefore they survived by going around doing odd jobs. And you wonder, why didn't they have any land? It could have been, I suppose, something connected with Joseph running away to, uh, running away to Egypt uh, for a couple of years uh, when, when Jesus was a baby. Um, could have been that. Could have been 
Mary being rejected because of all the thing about her getting pregnant and her saying it was an angel and everybody, you know, saying, oh yeah, it was a Roman soldier, as the Talmud says. Could have been something to do with that. But whatever the reason was, the family of uh, Jesus were poor. They were tecton. And in fact, in, uh, in Luke's record, he says, this is... Uh, the son of the carpenter. We know who Jesus is. He's the son of the carpenter. Here he's called the carpenter. So they're saying, yes, he's a tecton, the son of a tecton. Now, there was near to Nazareth a big Roman city, Sepphoris. And you don't read about it in the Gospels. And uh, it's interesting, you don't read about it. I mean, Nazareth was just a, a real small place at that time. That it was like a dormitory uh, village um, a few kilometers uh, away, really, from this big, huge town, new town of Sepphoris. And there was a lot of building work going on there that was done uh, around the time of, uh, of Jesus. It was huge expansion. And so it's almost certain that Jesus, perhaps in company with his, uh, with his father, or well, his adopted father, Joseph, would have worked there on building sites. It's almost inevitable that all the jobbing laborers, the, the day laborers, the, the tecton, the carpenters, the builders, the masons from Nazareth would have worked there in, in Sepphoris on building jobs. So just think of it. There was Jesus, suspected of being illegitimate, mother under a cloud. Uh, father, well, we don't know whether he was around or, or not, but I see no reason for thinking that he wasn't. Uh, and there he was, working on a building site. Now, you know, the, the idea of, that you see in pictures of, of Jesus uh, working in his workshop, etc., sort of making chairs and stuff, and uh, mending people's plows and stuff like that, well, maybe, we don't know, but I suspect his life was somewhat tougher than that. And there were all these sisters and brothers. There was a lot of other children involved. Um, according to this here, he had uh, four half-brothers and sisters. So there were at least six of them, plus Jesus. That's a lot of mouths to feed for someone who doesn't have land. You know, when you've got work, it's okay, but then that job finishes, and then there's a lull. Okay, so what are you going to do? You've got to feed those six kids, seven kids, including Jesus. And he, as the eldest, would, of course, have had to care for them. Now, I just mention that because Jesus knew hard times. And it's a myth to say that, oh yeah, to the poor the gospel is preached, the poor people are the ones who come to Jesus. Well, yeah, that may be the case, but it's not the case that it's easier to believe because you're poor rather than because you're rich. A poverty distracts, and it distracts terribly because of worry about tomorrow, particularly when you've got to provide, as the eldest son, for all these younger kids. Jesus knew poverty. And this is the whole wonderful thing about Jesus, that really there is no human experience which we may pass through that he has not had. And that's why his life was so unique, so intense, so much packed into it, so that none of us could ever say, he doesn't know how I feel. You may say, well, I'm rich. So, okay, if he was poor, how does he know what it feels like to be a rich guy? 
and the isolation and the loneliness which I guess comes from being wealthy no in another sense he who was rich became poor for our sakes you know, in a spiritual sense he also knew that loneliness of being in, in his case spiritually wealthy and so he had all this huge range of experience and that is why I think they all came together in the crucifixion at the end but there it was so intense that no one now can ever say nobody knows how I feel because Jesus does and this was the whole wonderful point of his very intense life what I think is beautiful is absolutely surpassing in its beauty is the way that he had lived amongst these people for 30 years and they never even once got the impression that he was anything other than ordinary but Jesus never sinned and sin does not only mean uh, committing sin you can also sin by omitting to do what you should do sins of omission as well as commission now Jesus for 30 years lived without ever committing a sin of commission nor ever committing a sin of omission must have been quite amazing to be with him but the beautiful thing is that nobody ever noticed and when you and I try to be a little bit more righteous than the guy next to us in the office or family or whatever unbelievers will notice that and they don't like it they mind it but somehow Jesus was so perfect that he could be morally spotless and yet nobody really thought he was anything special and that's why when he turns around at age 30 and basically says by implication I am Messiah and I'm the son of God and I'm your saviour they're like what? you're not, we know who you are you're just one of us, you're just an ordinary bloke don't be so up yourself now as I say Mark is emphasising the, the utter humanity of Jesus and I think that that is an exquisite window into how human he was that if you and I had met him on the street we wouldn't have noticed we wouldn't have thought this is the son of God and even if you were with him for 5 or 10 minutes you might not have perceived that he was anything special and that is amazing now I think another uh, window into his humanity that's brought out by Mark uh, several times in the gospel uh, as he records it is that people uh, is that, sorry, that there were unexpected outcomes for Jesus for example verse 6 he marveled because of their unbelief he was kind of surprised by it but this is the Jesus who had so much sensitivity so much understanding of the human psychology that he could almost, well he could, he could mind read now you could say God just gave him a zap of Holy Spirit to read what was in the Pharisees' hearts and various conflicts that he has with them but I would prefer to think that his perception of humanity was such that he knew what they were thinking and so why would he be amazed and shocked and surprised by the amount of unbelief well I think it was because his hopefulness in people was such that he hoped for much better and therefore he was disappointed and his hope was so great that it even overrode his natural ability to perceive a situation you know naturally speaking he would have perceived that no that lot who I grew up with are not going to want to know me and yes he did know that and yet his hopefulness that they just might change that they just might believe was even greater than that so then this 
Lord Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Jesus who was so hopeful of people, so sensitive to any sign of faith in them, is the same Jesus who looks down into your life and mine today. And he is so hopeful, and that hopeful spirit, I think, should continue with us too. Now, another example of an unexpected outcome is in verse 30, 31 and 32. So he, he wants to get them away. They've just come back uh, from their preaching trip, and they're all excited, and he says, look, let's go on our own. Let's go to a desert place. That's where nobody is. Not desert as in the Sinai Desert, but a deserted place. Um, just somewhere where there aren't, there's no other people. And let's just rest up for a bit. Let's get away from the crowds, because there were many coming and going. And so they sail off, verse 32, they departed to a desert place. But then there's a, it seems, that, that his plan doesn't work out, because all the inquisitive crowds go running round the lake, and they came together uh, to where he was. On, as he thought, in a deserted place the other side of the lake. That's why there was such a problem trying to feed all these people, because it was absolutely deserted. So it seems that uh, his uh, intention to go somewhere lonely didn't work out. And I, again, I think Mark is <coughs> sort of bringing that out, this sort of element of something unexpected, for Jesus. And again, that, you know, just underlines his humanity. You could also uh, argue that uh, when he keeps on telling people, don't tell anything, tell anyone about the miracles I did, and then they, they all seem to disobey him and go and tell everybody, again, you get the impression of uh, an, an intention on his side, on his part, that was not fulfilled. And on in chapter 7, verse 18, he says to the disciples when he's been talking about not being defiled by external things, Are you so without understanding also? He's really surprised at how little they understand. Then 7, verse 24, he goes into a house. Remember what we said about Mark's emphasis on house meetings? And he didn't want anyone to know it. But he could not be hid. So, again, he, it's like he wanted to go to a desert place in chapter 6, but, well, he thought he was going to a desert place, but then all the people ran around the lake, and it wasn't a deserted place anymore. I think this gives a window into that final cry, because we are here, above all, to remember Jesus as he was in his time of dying, when he says, My God, why or how have you forsaken me? And uh, the point has been made, and we make this point in the talk about Matthew 27, that he's alluding there, really, to the ram in the thicket. Lama Sabachthani, that Sabachthani is uh, that word, or related word, which the Septuagint uses to talk about how the ram in the thicket was entangled. And the implication could be, Jesus is thinking, I thought that at the very last minute you were going to save me out of this death, just like you did Isaac. But now I see I am the ram who must die. 
I'm the one who's entangled. So there was not 100% understanding. And in our weakness, we often suffer, mentally suffer, because of our lack of complete understanding. Because we don't understand what's going on. You know, when something very significant is going on and you don't understand what's happening, you're, you're very distressed. And Jesus knows even that. And as I say, it came together, these sort of what I would call unexpected outcomes here uh, come together in that final crisis of the cross. So let's take real comfort that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, up to death itself. And on the way to death, because we're all in one sense on the way to our deaths, uh, there is nothing psychologically that can come between us and him. He knows and he feels exactly for us. And that is why, as Hebrews 2 and 4 make very clear, we should therefore, Hebrews 4.16, come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that we have there someone who really is our mediator and our succorer, our supporter in our time of need, because really and truly he was there. And because he was there, we can each say in our own lives, and he is here as well.